is God's word. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. We stop there in our reading from God's word. There are other miracles of Jesus healing blind people, but Mark is the only one who records this miracle of Jesus healing this blind man. On top of that, this is the only miracle of any of the miracles of Jesus that took place in two stages. And what I mean by that is that this is the only miracle that had a gradual process, if we call it that, where a person was partway healed at first and later fully healed. And the take-home lesson for us is this, that Jesus has power to open our spiritual eyes so that we can see everything clearly. We'll talk about the condition of spiritual blindness from verse 22, the two-step miracle of opening blind eyes, verses 23 and 24, and then the two-step lesson for those who have eyes but cannot see clearly yet, going back to verse 18, and then verses 25 and 26. So our first point is the condition of spiritual blindness. Now back in verse 13, they were told that Jesus and the disciples had just crossed the sea in the boat. They arrived at a village in verse 22 now called Bethsaida, which means house of fishermen. Even though it was called a village, it was a fairly well-populated area since it was the capital of the district, and it was on the shore of Galilee, busy with fishermen, people buying the fish, and note it was in the Gentile area on the northeastern shore of the sea. So as Jesus and the disciples arrived there, something happened. Verse 22, Mark tells us that some people brought to Jesus a blind man. Why? Well, they already knew that Jesus had healing powers, and so they, in verse 22, begged Jesus to touch the blind man. Their assumption was that the touch of Jesus would automatically and instantly result in a healing so that the blind man could see. Perhaps they did not even intend to inconvenience or delay the great rabbi at all. We could think of them thinking things like this, um, please just touch him. We're begging you. We don't need anything more. We're not asking for much of your time, sir. But there were so many blind people in the ancient world. There's too many today, aren't there? And yet, in the ancient world, it seems that it was even more common. We know that Jesus was a man of compassion on the crowds. We saw that in our chapter, verse 2. But would Jesus have compassion on this one blind man? There were so many. Reasons uh, such as the ancient lack of understanding regarding personal hygiene, the unavailability of our modern effective medicines, uh, more exposure to the ailments in those days, and much more domestic trauma left many people blind. Wherever one traveled in those days, one would find eyes clouded, staring, and a fly swarmed. This was not an uncommon sight for Jesus, for the disciples, and here these folks are bringing one blind man. This sightless man in our Bible passage would have a hard life, Our author, Mark, expects us to be able to quickly imagine and evoke our own compassion for him. A blind man in the ancient world would have a hard life financially, medically, and daily in many, many ways. What this particular blind man had going for him was apparently he had some people. 
people, literally people. That's all that Mark tells us, they're people. If, if, if they were relatives, perhaps Mark would write that they were relatives of his. Uh, Mark only wrote that the blind man had some unidentified persons who brought him to Jesus. We, we don't know much about these helpers, but the more we study verse 22, there's actually a lot of data here. Uh, they were not playing a cruel trick on this blind man. They were doing a good deed. So we could, I guess, refer to them as friends, friends of the blind man. And what we know about them is this. They're people who believed that Jesus could heal this particular blind man. Their belief was practical and well-founded because many multitudes of people had seen Jesus heal people. It was well known across the area that Jesus possessed healing powers, and so these friends had learned about other patients who had previously received healings and thought that they would bring their friend, if you will. But Mark, in just a few words here in verse 22, has signaled yet more information to us when we study it. The friends of this blind man had more than a belief in the abilities of Jesus. They also had an expectation that Jesus would, in fact, go ahead and do so. These were well-informed expectations also, for they had heard, as Jesus himself said back in verse 2, that he's filled with compassion. They had not requested Jesus to change his own travel plans and come along with them to their patient, wherever their patient was located. No, they had not expected Jesus to accompany them across town in order to enter some house of some blind man, the friend of theirs. And there's no expectation of a house call here. No, these friends had done all the work. They had made arrangements and then accomplished their goal, however that must have been, however difficult it was, they brought the blind men all the way to the site where Jesus himself had arrived, wherever that happened to be. Here it is, Bethsaida, near the Sea of Galilee. Perhaps they had faced no small task. And what were they asking of Jesus? All that they were hoping was that if they brought the blind men all the way to him, that Jesus would grant a touch. It seems they envisioned the rabbi wouldn't even need to take a single step out of his path, out of his way, if only he would be so kind as to simply reach out and touch the man. And by touching the man, of course, he'd end up healed is their assumption. And In fact, the action they took was, in verse 22, informed us they went to work verbally. They begged Jesus to touch the blind man. And the friends of the blind man thought that they had Jesus all figured out. They thought they had blindness all figured out. This is their theory. Physical blindness is the problem. The touch of Jesus is the solution. They thought they had it all figured out. These people had even predicted how Jesus was going to work. Uh, maybe they heard about a previous incident of what Jesus had done in that case. Uh, maybe these friends themselves had witnessed Jesus heal someone before they thought that they understood the standard miracle healing protocol of this particular rabbi. And here's what they thought. Step one, patient typically brought to rabbi. Step two, rabbi touches patient, sometimes even without saying a word, which would be just fine, with them, and that patient immediately is healed. All happy, case closed. They wanted one of those. And since these friends of the blind man are probably Gentiles here in a Gentile area, and since this territory was a Gentile territory, it's quite possible that these friends ended up trusting more in the touch of Jesus than in Jesus himself. They trusted more in the touch of Jesus than in Jesus himself. And for these well-meaning friends of the blind man, 
Jesus was a mobile miracle machine and not a savior from sins. Let me just ask you right now, who's blind? What Mark wants us to see is that the friends of the blind man are themselves blind, spiritually blind. They don't understand the Savior that's right in front of them. Is that not spiritual blindness? Mark is showing us point one about the condition of spiritual blindness. We move to step two, the two-step miracle of opening blind eyes, verses 23 and 24. Now up to this point, this healing miracle has operated like other healing stories we're quite familiar with through the Gospels. But they're now, beginning now, in verse 23, new and different aspects of this miracle that we've not seen before and you won't see elsewhere. It was not the usual procedure of Jesus to take positive action in order to isolate himself away from a congregation of people, people in which he was already standing, in order to heal someone. In fact, we have two examples of the opposite. In Mark chapter 1 and in Mark chapter 3, Mark told us that Jesus had healed people right in front of a crowd. And then later, in Mark chapter 10, we will see Jesus healed a blind man right in front of the crowd. A blind man, no less. And so what we read here is unique in verse 23 where we read, And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. Say what? This is that shocking. This is very different. This is a new way of proceeding. And Mark is leading us to wonder, what were the vast, unique circumstances that would lead Jesus to take such different, drastic action to lead this man out of the village in order to perform a miracle? And the issue is, this blind man's interest level is yet unknown so far. Some people had brought to Jesus a blind man, and those people begged Jesus to touch the blind man. Mark did not even identify those people because they don't matter. What matters is the patient. What matters is this particular blind man. And the blind man was not begging to be healed. We know nothing about this blind man. Is the blind man assuming that Jesus is able to perform a miracle? Is the blind man interested in being healed? Is the blind man interested in anything beyond just physical sight? So many unknowns. So Jesus acted differently in this instance because the situation was different. It demanded different action from the Savior of sinners. The actions of Jesus seem to be the same here as we saw back in chapter 7, verses 31 to 37, where Jesus established a personal contact with the man who was both deaf and had a speech impediment. Mark 7.33 informed us that Jesus took that man aside from the crowd privately. How would anyone communicate to a deaf man? Pull the deaf man apart and have this personal moment with him. Jesus, with all of his wisdom, put his fingers into the man's ears, communicating to the man, I'm going to do something about your lack of hearing. Jesus used spittle on the man's tongue, which was communicating to that man that Jesus was going to do something in order to remove your speech impediment. He began to engage the man in his faith in Jesus. And Jesus then looked up to heaven, we're told in Mark 7, which showed the man that the source of the power is from the God of heaven. And then Jesus said, be opened, which is probably the first words the previously deaf man had ever heard. And all of this tells us that Jesus wanted to establish a personal contact with the deaf man in order to help his faith in Jesus, not just his hearing and his speaking. The last thing Jesus wanted 
was to end up with a man physically healed and spiritually still dying in his sins. He came to save from sin, see? A man who had ears to hear physically, but not ears to hear spiritual truth? We don't want to end up with that. Same here with the blind man in chapter 8 then. Jesus didn't want to end up with a man who could see physically, but couldn't see the spiritual truth. He didn't want to be known as the mobile miracle um, healing man. Remember Mark chapter 1, verse 34, when Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, in the very next verse, Mark 1, 35, they said to Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Right, because he's the mobile miracle worker, the mobile miracle machine. But Jesus said, very next verse, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. The crowds wanted healing for the sick. Jesus wanted to preach until they understood spiritual truth. Verse 23, Jesus took the blind man by the hand. There's your touch, friends. The friends, the, uh, the other people. If this goes out in a moment, I'll switch batteries. Don't worry. Um, this is the touch that the friends of the blind man had begged for. The touch that they had anticipated. According to their plan, he touched. It should be over right now. But after Jesus touched the hand of the blind man, nothing happened. No instant miracle. So much for the plan. Jesus kept on holding the man's hand and continued to hold the blind man's hand. And Jesus is beginning to communicate personal truths by holding his hand and starting to lead him to walk together. Uh, Things were getting across, such as, I care about you. I'm here to help you. You need to follow me. I will lead you. You can trust me. Let's go right now. All those things were getting communicated by Jesus holding the man's hand. He began to lead the man away from the village. The hand of the Savior and the hand of the blind man still connected, no healing. Jesus also received communications back from the man. You say, how's that? Well, at a minimum, we could say the blind man communicated to Jesus, I'm interested. How do we know that? Well, the blind man didn't let go of Jesus' hand, either willingly or quite insistently. He could have slapped his hand and said, what are you doing? Or something along those lines. The blind man did not resist the leading of Jesus to walk him away. The blind man didn't call out for his friends. Yo, who's this crazy rabbi? Get me out of here. There's none of that sort of response and resistance. In fact, the blind man fully and willingly participated by physically following Jesus out of the village. The blind man began to hope that Jesus was going to do something, didn't he? The blind man followed the lead of Jesus and the expectations of the blind man were increasing. Jesus would have to build trust with the man, wouldn't he? In order to actually lead him all the way out of the village, whatever obstacles came up, whatever people jumped in the way, Jesus would need to lead the man around them with gentleness and with faithfulness. He would need to direct the man where to step, where not to step. With the strength of a young carpenter, stood ready to steady the man if the man stumbled and to prevent the blind man from falling down. Pause and see the beautiful moment. It's about to get gross, so pause and see the beautiful moment. Out of all the people who've ever lived, seriously, out of all the people who've ever lived on the earth, this particular nameless blind man now suddenly receives, you have to admit, one of the highest honors a human being has ever received. To be taken by the hand and personally led out of the village to have a one-on-one with Jesus. 
a private meeting with Jesus Christ. Pretty up there. Verse 23 then informs us Jesus spat on the man's eye. Now, first of all, gross, right? That's our reaction. It's supposed to be our reaction. As modern readers, it seems despicable to us for a person to spit on another person, uh, for spittle to work in some kind of way for someone else. I mean, it was more common in the old ancient days. Perhaps you've had your mother notice a smudge off the side of your cheek and uh, by wetting her finger with her own saliva, then rub your face right in front of all your friends and I suspect your reaction was not pleasant. And the method here is similar to what Jesus did though in chapter 7, verse 33, when Jesus applied spittle to the tongue of a man with a speech impediment. Maybe that's more gross, I don't know. It's a significant parallel, though. Mark wants us to see the spittle used in chapter 7 for a deaf man and the spittle used in chapter 8 for a blind man. Jesus used something, go with me on thinking it through, something that was of himself, something which possessed the power of his own person. If we look at the situation with the spiritual realm in mind and fast forward just a bit, the Soon future is that Jesus will be hoisted to a cross, a spear thrust into his side, and what will flow? Blood and what? Blood and water from Jesus. John 19, 34. And that brings all the power of redemption. So, if a few drops of spittle from this precious one were connected to the blind man, Because Jesus is ordained to bless patients with physically blind eyes and ordained to bless sinners with spiritually blind eyes, we have something here. Besides, it does not matter which outward operation of the miracle Jesus selects, does it? We're not talking here about some magic saliva. We're not concerned with this or distracted by this at all. Jesus could have simply spoken words and the miracle could happen, but Jesus decided that he would use a different method for this particular healing. And the point with the various methods of Jesus healing people in a variety of ways is that he himself is not restricted by any of them. Jesus could change the manner of his working miracles and he remained in complete control of the supernatural power that he possessed and he could unleash it by word, by touch, or by spittle. Any questions? I mean, the message to us is loud and clear that Jesus remains in complete control of unleashing and blessing people with supernatural power. He could heal with or without any means whatsoever. He himself is the source of healing and the source of life. Remember that we learned last time already in chapter 8, he is the bread of life. The same lesson continues here. All we need is Jesus. I'll take a few drops from his spittle. Give me Jesus. Next, Jesus laid his hands on the man. Now, this action had been done before. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus laying hands on a sick person. He had done that many times for many sick people, and they were instantly healed. But what Jesus did next has no equivalent across the four Gospels. Jesus next asked the blind man whether the action of Jesus had been effective. Here it is, verse 23. Jesus asked the man, do you see anything? There's yet another item here that has no equivalent across the four gospel accounts. It's a reference to an only partial healing. Verse 24, when the man replied to Jesus by saying, I see people, but they look like trees walking. It's a description of an indistinct sight. He sees moving shapes because they're walking about. They ought to be people, but he cannot yet see them clearly enough to identify them as people. 
Perhaps he's looking back at the village. And Jesus said, Jesus had purposely performed a partial healing. I will not stand for any commentaries or any persons who say that Jesus lacked the power or he goofed up somehow. There is no room for that in all of Scripture. No, he did not have a shortage of miraculous power that moment. No way. This is the genius plan of Jesus, but why? We need to understand why. Jesus is proving that he had the full freedom to select whatever method he wanted to select in order to work his miracles, and he's not restricted to some fixed process that the friends of the blind man thought that they should have. The grace of Christ, which on other occasions had been suddenly poured out on others through a touch, through a word, to this man flowed in drops. But even if a few drops of spittle could cause a partial healing, consider the effect instantly on this man. Consider the effect on his faith, you see. The effect was electrifying. For whatever he must have tried, for whatever his friends had tried before, for the first time, at least in years and maybe in his whole life, this blind man could see light and shapes and movements of people. He couldn't see that seconds before. What must be happening to that man's expectations about Jesus doing something for him? Would his faith and the ability of Jesus be increasing or decreasing? <laughs> increasing. The miracle was done gradually because Jesus focused on the man's faith and his spiritual eyesight more than on the man's physical eyesight. Jesus did not come to Bethsaida to be a mobile miracle machine. He came into this world to save people from their sins, and he came to Bethsaida to save this man from his sins. And Jesus did not simply conduct healings. He was conducting a saving ministry by leading people to their faith in Jesus himself. Move to our third point, which is, how does this two-step lesson now apply for those who have eyes but cannot yet see clearly? Verse 25, we have still another aspect of this miracle story that's unique to this passage. The laying on of hands by Jesus a second time on a sick person, which resulted then in the complete healing, moving from partial healing to full healing. Who's the first person that this formerly blind man saw clearly? Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? He had led the man away from the crowd. The other people were at a distance. Jesus is close enough to lay his hands on the man a second time. Jesus opened the man's eyes and perhaps even literally lifting his eyelids. We're not told that, but perhaps that close is my point. And he saw Jesus. Mark tells us this statement, so full of meaning, so beautiful, I borrowed it from my sermon title. He saw everything Clearly, And here Mark uses a rare Greek word that means to see clearly at a distance. In other words, he had 20-20 vision. But we're not talking about his physical eyes, are we? Our Lord's miracles were more than events of physical healing. The miracles are parables about a spiritual reality. So the importance of the story from Mark's gospel account is that the story illustrates and anticipates the opening of the eyes of the understanding of the disciples. Remember where we left off in the previous passage? The eyes of the disciples were opened eventually, not by their own perception, but by the powerful intervention of God's gracious revelation. God revealing his understanding to the disciples was as much a miraculous gift as is the opening of this blind man's physical eyes. So Mark is signaling to us that this blind man was no longer blind physically, okay, 
but also that spiritually, unlike the disciples, this formerly blind man saw everything clearly. In a very short time with Jesus, the formerly blind man had come to understand that Christ is all he needs. He was formerly following Jesus, literally out of the village, being led by the hand by Jesus Christ, and now the man is following Jesus with everything he had. In verse 26, the instruction from Jesus to the man is for the man to go home. In addition to that, we have words from Jesus to the formerly blind man, do not even enter the village. It had become common for Jesus to tell people to keep silent about a miracle he had just performed. Chapter 144, after Jesus healed a leper, he said, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. He's more interested in the priest getting a message than in the crowd's getting news about a miracle. Again, in chapter 5, verse 43, after a double miracle in which Jesus healed a woman from bleeding disease, the daughter of government official who had died, he raised from the dead. Then, after the double miracle, Jesus said, he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Chapter 5, 43. And again, in chapter seven thirty-six, after Jesus healed a deaf man, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more Jesus charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And look at the result in chapter 7, verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now look at the result similarly of Jesus healing the blind man in chapter 8, 25, where we read now in chapter 8, 29, Peter finally understands. And Peter can say, you are the Christ. That confession by Peter is brand new. In chapter 7, a person who could not hear could finally hear. And one who could not speak could say, the Lord has done all things well. And here in chapter 8, this miracle was also an acted out parable. A parable about seeing everything clearly. We read first about this when we go back to verse 18. Jesus said to his disciples about them, having eyes do you not see? Then in verse 21, Jesus asked his disciples, do you not yet understand? And then Jesus healed the blind man partway and asked him in verse 23, do you see anything? And then the man could see people walking around like trees. And then in verse 25, Jesus healed the man completely so that he saw everything clearly. And then in verse 29, Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. Do you see it? It's a parable of the disciples coming to understand. The disciples finally recognize the Christ who has just opened the physical eyes of this blind man is all we need. The miracle of Jesus opening the eyes of the blind man showed it was Christ who opened the spiritual eyes of Peter. Peter understood because of Jesus. Peter understood who Christ was because Christ intervened. Peter could see. Peter could understand. Peter could not yet see everything clearly. There would be more learning. Just read the rest of our chapter. Peter could see that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. He was genuine about that, and he was correct about that. But what Peter did not yet understand was the full nature of the ministry of Jesus. He's not just a rabbi teaching and also working some miracles. He's going all the way to save from sins. He's going all the way to the cross. So Jesus begins to unfold that. And just moments after Peter's confession that you're the Christ... And uh, Jesus began to speak about being killed. 
And three days later, rising again, verse 31. And in verse 32, Peter took Jesus aside. Can you believe this? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Can Peter see everything clearly yet? (laughs) Ah, yes, more to learn. Peter is a parable of me. Peter is a parable of you. See everything clearly is ahead of us. So what have we seen? Jesus has power to open our spiritual eyes. We can see everything clearly. The condition of spiritual blindness explained. The two-step miracle of opening blind eyes done quite purposely. And the two-step miracle having a lesson for those who have eyes, like we do, and cannot yet see clearly. One application point tonight, be patient in your waiting on God to give you deeper understanding. That's the application to us. Be patient in your waiting on God to give you deeper understanding. Proverbs 4, 18 says, The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Proverbs 4, 18. In Hebrews 12, 2, we're told that Jesus is the author of our faith. That means he's the one who initiates us receiving faith in the first place. But the same verse also says that Jesus, in addition, is the finisher of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who gives us the faith in the first place, but he's also the one who completes the process of our faith being built up and deepened. In 1 Corinthians 13, 9, Paul puts it this way, We know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect perfect comes, the partial will pass Away. Paul says it again this way in Philippians 1 6, maybe more well known to us. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1 6. So we come to God for growth. But we must not tell God how he should give us growth. Let's say you pray for maturity and then God puts difficult people in your life. Whoa, wait, Lord, uh, please don't use that method. I just wanted maturity. An understanding and a deeper spiritual walk. Being patient with how God decides to give us deeper understanding is all part of it. Being patient includes not being jealous of the gifts that God gives others for spiritual understanding. That God decides how and when and how much and to whom to give his gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.4, there are varieties of gifts the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 6. We're not fully sanctified and enlightened all at once with some magical transformation, without process, without the pain of growth, without the constant working of God on us over time. While we're here on earth, one of the lessons from this miracle This passage is imperfect vision will be ours. Imperfect vision. Imperfect understanding will be ours here. It's true even for those of us who've been brought out of darkness to light. Not questioning your conversion, not questioning your faith. And yet, our spiritual condition, when compared to our eyesight, we've got cataracts. (laughs) And our Savior has all the skill all the tenderness, to be able to remove them and give us greater sight, greater vision, greater understanding. So the application to us from this amazing miracle, 
story is to be patient in your waiting on God to give you deeper understanding. While you're waiting, you can pray. You can pray for the Spirit of God to open the eyes of our understanding to discern more fully the will of God for our lives. For example, Ephesians 1.18, I'll end with this. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Ephesians 1, 18 to 21, I read that specifically for the words, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that God might continue to enlighten us and open our eyes further. The eyes of our heart, our spiritual eyes, our spiritual eyesight, our spiritual understanding should be an item for our prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly 